You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey everybody, CJ here, your guerrilla scholar, warrior, one-man revolution, and renaissance man for the new dark age, here with another installment of Dangerous History. And in this episode, I'm very pleased to share with you a conversation I had recently with a very cool guy and interesting podcaster, Sam Davis, of the Inward Empire podcast. Now, Sam is somebody whose podcast I've been a fan of since I first found out about it, probably at least two years ago, if not a bit longer. And he's also a comrade of mine in the Dark Myths Podcast Collective. And as you'll hear me say to him near the start of our conversation, his podcast is one of relatively few history podcasts that I'm a really regular listener to. I actually don't listen to all that many history podcasts, at least on a regular basis. I might listen to an occasional episode of something here or there, but there are just not very many that I like enough where I listen to every episode whenever they come out. But Sam's is one of those. And if you're not familiar with this podcast, you really should check it out and you'll get a sense in our conversation of the kinds of things that he covers. And one thing I like that I try to do as well is he does a lot of research and he really likes to go deep into a subject and not just stay on the superficial level of things. So it's definitely one of the big factors of why I've been a fan of his show. And also, he covers a lot of topics and themes that I'm interested in too. Sam is also, I should mention, someone I met personally when I was up in Massachusetts back in November of 2018 for the Sound Education Podcast Conference. And Sam actually lives in the Boston area, so he was there. And, you know, I got to chat with him a fair amount and hang out with him a bit and enjoyed the experience. So I definitely left there after having met him, intending to get him on the Dangerous History Podcast. Of course, I got sidetracked with a whole bunch of things, wrapping up the Civil War, recovering from surgery, a bunch of other things as well. So it took a while, but I definitely still had it in the back of my mind. I wanted to get him on for an episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. So I did. And we cover a lot of topics. We talk a bit of shop talk about history podcasting and some of the things we observed at that conference at Harvard. And we talk quite a bit about a lot of the subjects and themes that Sam has covered in his show. And we dig into a whole bunch of things related to that. And then towards the end, we also talk a little bit about teaching because Sam has been teaching, I guess, for about the last year or so. And he's in a very different setting than me. He's at a private school at the high school level. And so in, you know, just countless ways, it's a totally different experience than I've had in terms of a teaching day job. But um, 
it is interesting to get someone else's perspective from inside the industry, so to speak. And of course, I'll link to Sam's work in the show notes for this episode, and I highly recommend checking out his podcast. So, for your listening and thinking pleasure, my conversation with Sam Davis of Inward Empire. All right. So, Sam, thank you for joining me on the Dangerous History Podcast this morning. Hey, thanks, CJ. It's a pleasure to uh, be on. Yeah, so I have to say that, and I'm not just trying to, uh, to, to butter, up butter you up because you're nice enough to come on my show, but your podcast, Inward Empire, is one of relatively few history podcasts that I thoroughly enjoy and that I always listen to quickly whenever a new episode comes out. And this, this might surprise listeners because they might assume that because I'm a history podcaster, that must mean that I listen to history podcasts nonstop. But in reality, I actually have a pretty short list of history podcasts I like. I'm actually quite snobby when it comes to history podcasts. So I, I just wanted to right off the bat say that I completely enjoy your podcast and I'm a big fan. Thanks. Yeah. You know, it's funny for me, it's actually the same way. Uh, partly it's like a time thing because uh, there are just so many shows out there and I feel like every month or two there's, you know, a new interesting one that's out there that I'd love to have the time to listen to. But, you know, the, the for me, just the, the list is quite short as well. So uh, Dangerous History is one of the ones on the list for me though as well. So it's nice to have the mutual admiration thing out of the way at the start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm glad we both enjoy each other's shows. It makes this a lot less awkward. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we could we could probably go go off on a side tangent for an hour about like criticisms of other history podcasts. But I don't know. To me, it's like uh, some of them are are just too superficial or too kind of generic. I mean, some of them I feel like you're basically just listening to someone kind of tell you what the bullet points would be in Wikipedia for that topic. And, and there's not, there's not a lot of depth there. Um, some of them I think are overproduced, I guess the ones that have like way too much soundtrack and, and sound effects throughout the whole thing. And it's like, they're trying to be a 1920s radio show or something, but um, you know, and, and as we've, as we've discussed a little bit, including when we, when we met in person um, a few months back at that, uh, what was it? The Sound Education Conference at Harvard back um, last November. There, there certainly is a difference between the kind of like a like a two tiered system that we sort of saw there between those of us like you and I who are are kind of, for lack of a better term, indie podcasters who, you know, kind of like a a one person operation for the most part. Um, and you know, not a, not a huge production budget, and not all this sort of thing. And then there's the fancy folks, you know. Then there's the folks who, I guess, they're like the equivalent of like the major label uh, bands, you know. And, and we're sort of more like the the DIY punk bands or something like this. And sure, is very different. Um, those people who are just like, yeah, well, you know, what I do is I just hire a couple more research assistants, and you know, all this yeah. sort of thing. Um, and then we're like, okay, yeah, okay, that, that ain't gonna work. What else? So um, I'm curious to hear. Um, 
uh, you don't have to get, go into too much detail and you don't have to name names if you don't want to. Of course, um, I'm not. But um, wh- what are you th- your thoughts on on some of the other history podcasts out there that maybe you're not as big a fan of? Well, I don't want to get too much into like naming names with this stuff just because I, I, I think the, the more important stuff has to do with like bigger trends in terms of like categories of shows. And for people who have listened to a lot of podcasts, like history podcasts, or, you know, I'm sure this is true of like true crime or other genres too, but I find that it, it generally breaks down into one of two categories. Um, the first one is there, there are, well, first of all, just in terms of resources, there are the people who have a lot and the people who don't have much. So, yeah, I remember that was one thing that was really interesting at the uh, the Sound Education Conference was, I'm not sure, I, I can't remember if you were at this panel, I think you were. Uh, so, one, yeah, one really interesting thing that panel we went to was there were like, uh, it was from one of the NPR back shows, and uh, there was a question I had for one of these guys that was about like, how do you create a show that has both like a, a strong, like timely release schedule and also has deep research. And, you know, how do you balance those two things, right? Like you want to do a deep dive into a topic, especially one that you might know that, that you might uh, not know that much about. Like right now I'm doing a show on uh, like some of the early stages of the Vietnam war and it's not a topic I know a lot about. So I have to do like a real deep dive into like the background literature and then getting more specific um, so I asked this guy about that and he said, well, you know, the answer is quite easy. You just get your interns to, you know, do the work for you. Um, yeah. And if you can manage, if you can manage your interns, it's really the success to, uh, uh, you know, the, the secret to success for a show. So, all right. That was actually really eye opening. Um, yeah. yeah. So there's a divide between the people who have resources and the people who don't. Um, and I count things like time as well as a major resource. Like, you know, I know for both of us, like we both teach, which is a very demanding, like time intensive kind of day job. So that also eats into it. For the people who are more on the DIY side, though, I, I find that the shows tend to break down into one of two categories. Um, there are people who do deep dives and there are people who do kind of like spruced up uh, Wikipedia articles where, you know, if you want to have a, a fast release schedule, it's really hard to have both like a weekly or bi-weekly show and something that also gets into like a high degree of detail, you know, where you really dig into primary sources and all that other good stuff. So it's, it, it's hard to balance things out. And I, I find that there are very few shows on the, the side of people who are more on like the DIY category who are able to balance those two things. So, I mean, I, I like, I love doing a deep dive on my topics, but it also means I have a really bad release schedule. You know, like it's just a, a function of where I'm at that it just ends up being really, really slow. So I would love to have something out, you know, every month or two months or something like that. I mean, for me, I count that as like a, a very fast release schedule, but uh, because of the time and the resources, it just makes things kind of, kind of tricky. Yeah. Yeah. Believe me. I, but also, I you know, understand. Yeah. Well, another thing, though, um, and this is something that I really admire about your show, is that, uh, you know, we're, we're in a kind of a, a market of history podcasts where there are a few models that people follow. So, like, there's kind of the NPR model, right? I'm thinking about shows like Backstory, for example, that have, like, a panel. Uh, they have, you know, the resources to uh, have interns doing background research. They have really nice production quality. 
but then also there's a certain like kind of slant to it, both politically and in terms of the way they present the information. Um, anyone who's listened to NPR, uh, you know, or listened to one of their shows like Backstory or whatever knows exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, then on the other side, like on the DIY side, uh, there are a couple of models. And I think the dominant one is the, uh, the Dan Carlin model for people who do longer form, right? But that's kind of tricky uh, to pursue because Dan is such an, an individual, like as, both in terms of his like delivery style and the way that he, like his choice of topics and all that other stuff. So, you know, in terms of the other long form shows, like there's uh, Daniele Bolelli's show, History on Fire. He has a more relaxed um, Italian professorial kind of uh, vibe to his show. It's a lot more uh, detached, I think, in his kind of like presentation than dances. Um, and then I also think, because, you know, Daryl Cooper is about to, uh, he's the creator of the Martyr Maid podcast, for those who don't know. He has one fantastic, like, multi-part, very long-form series on the origins of the Arab-Israeli conflict. And I think as he starts producing more, I know this year is going to be a big year for him, um, just in terms of the episodes he releases, like, he's going to become kind of a new model, too. So for folks like uh, you and me as well, it's like, trying to find your, your voice as a DIY podcaster in this very, uh, this market where there's like very few models to pursue, I think is a really interesting kind of like creative endeavor. Yeah. And, and one more thing I wanted to mention before we start, you know, zeroing in um, on, on your podcast and, and some of the themes and topics that you've covered that I want to talk to you about that I was struck by. And I think you were as well um, when we attended that conference was that a lot of the more, for lack of a better term, institutional history podcasters, they really kind of looked down on Dan Carlin. And it really kind of made me realize, in a way, Dan Carlin is kind of like the equivalent of an indie DIY podcaster who just, like, you know, made it really big. And, but but he, you know, and, and and we always wonder, you know, is Ben real and does he have additional people besides Ben and, you know, all that stuff. But, mm -hmm. but, but he's someone who, even though he's obviously like the biggest history podcaster in the world, he's still kind of, to me at least, seems to have that, that indie spirit of, of being his own, his own thing and, and doing things his way. And even if he does have, you know, maybe a few people working with him now to help him with production and things, still, I don't get the impression that, that it's at all like these more institutional podcasters, what he does. And it was just very interesting to, to see that the institutional podcasters, like, they don't really like Dan Carlin. I don't, I don't know. I guess they see him as like the equivalent of a, of a garage band who somehow managed to strike it big, but is still kind of doing it on their own terms. Um, and, and not, you know, completely selling out to the, to the big record company or something. Oh, oh yeah. Well, they, they hate Dan, I think. Uh, I don't think it's a universal thing. Like, I'm sure there are some folks who work for, you know, podcasts that have backing from big radio stations or universities or whatever who have maybe a little more uh, love for the guy. But, man, some of the, the people that I've spoken to or, you know, heard them comment on him, there's uh, – yeah, a real, like, not just dislike, but, like, disdain for his model of doing things. So he's kind of like a shorthand for the, the DIY stuff, which I think is interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so let's, let's start veering into Inward Empire. So 
Can you tell us a bit about the path that brought you to becoming a history podcaster? And in particular, what brought you to doing the show that you've been doing, Inward Empire, and the sorts of topics that you've covered? Like, how did you arrive at this point? Sure. So for me, there were two big moments that really contributed to that. Uh, I started doing the show, I think the first release, if I remember correctly, was February 2015. And in the year or so leading up to that, there were a couple of things that really shaped um, me wanting to do this as a project. So the first one came, uh, I was actually, I, I wasn't a history major in college. I majored in uh, in music, in a saxophone performance, actually. So that's my background at the, the lower academic level. I, I went on and did a master's in history at, at uh, Boston College about a year ago. So I, I was in my last year of my music degree, and I was doing some history stuff as electives. It had been kind of a background interest for me for a while. But uh, the first big moment that influenced me came in my last year in school where I started listening to uh, hardcore history. And the uh, first episodes that I listened to were the uh, Death Throes of the Republic ones. So he was in the middle, I think, of doing the, uh, the, the series on the uh, decline and fall of the Roman Republic. And I had never listened to a podcast period before, much less a history podcast. So for me, hearing that, this huge long form, like, you know, unbelievably exciting, engaging kind of story uh, that really turned my head around. I was like, wow, what is this? I didn't realize this was something that could really be done um, beforehand. So that was the first thing. Um, And then about a year later, uh, when I was in my first year out of school, I read first book in a trilogy uh, by a historian named Richard Slotkin, who taught for a, I don't think he teaches there anymore, but he taught for a really long time at Wesleyan. And uh, this was a book that he wrote back in the 70s. And I think he was like in his late 20s or something when he did this. It was like this passion project for him. And the book is called Regeneration Through Violence. And it's the first book in a trilogy that he wrote about the mythology of the American frontier. So he starts the series like pre-1600 and he's looking at, you know, really early like European conceptions about, you know, some uh, mythical land to, to the West or whatever. And then he starts with the early uh, colonization narratives. He focuses a lot on the Puritans in that first book. And um, in the subsequent books, there's another one called The Fatal Environment and a third one called uh, Gunfighter Nation. And he takes it all the way up through like the um, mid, late stages of the Cold War with that third book. And for me, reading especially that first one really reignited my interest in American history and particularly in like the idea of mythology. So as the project has evolved, you know, the first episode I did was really a direct outgrowth of reading that book um, because I focused, you know, for the first two episodes, um, they were long form episodes focused on the early colonization of New England, uh, period colonization with a focus on the various conflicts with native groups there. That was shaped really heavily by reading that book and also listening to the, uh, the Dan Carlin episodes. So those were the two big influences. Um, as the project has gone on and evolved, I, I got really into the late 19th century stuff for a long time, and maybe we can talk about that later. Um, now I'm trying to branch out a little bit more chronologically, but I think the through line is this interest in the stories that Americans tell ourselves about ourselves and trying to use this show as like, a medium to get people thinking critically about our past, about those stories, and hopefully arrive at something, you know, a little 
deeper and uh, more interesting than the basic myths that were, you know, fed on a daily basis. Yeah, no, I, I have my ideas, but I'm curious to hear your, your explanation of it. How did you come up with the title Inward Empire? And wh- what does that phrase mean to you looking at hmm. American history? Well, at one level, it's just a title that I liked the the sound of, but it connects to some of the the themes of the show. So like, I'm interested in particular in the idea of like the the expansive spread of both American territory and American ideas, and the way in which the ideas behind the American experiment are linked to themes like uh, expansion, imperialism, stuff like that. So that's, you know, the United States has always been an empire, and that word is kind of linked to some of the major themes that I see in American history. The inward side is just the reflection on ideas and ideologies. So basically what I'm looking at in each episode is how in, you know, whatever story I'm looking at, the ways in which the uh, the ways in which people are thinking affects what they do. So that's the title in a nutshell. Okay. Yeah, that is, that is kind of how I, I thought about it too. So I guess I, uh, I, I, I interpret it correctly then. Uh, yeah. It, you know, this is something that I've always thought about and thought was important and it's only increased in recent years in my mind in terms of how important this is in American history and how important the the misunderstanding of it is to um, seemingly Americans generation after generation continuing to make some of the same mistakes and commit some of the same moral atrocities even. And I mean, to me, the, the fact that the United States is clearly an empire and always has been since even before its inception as a, an independent nation. You know, if you look back, basically like these were, these were the front line, the colonists in North America were the front line shock troop settlers of another empire, the British empire. And when they broke away from that, they didn't reject the concept of empire. They simply rejected having it have being the grunts of an empire run out of London they, they instead wanted to be the oligarchs, I guess, in charge of their their own American-grown empire. And to me, the, the notion that the vast majority of Americans walking around today would vehemently reject the notion that the United States is an empire and pretty much always has been, it's got to be one of the greatest con jobs in history that you know, many generations of American elites over several centuries managed to build the most powerful empire in the history of the world up to this point, and yet have convinced most of the citizens of that empire that whatever this thing is, it's absolutely not an empire. And and it just astounds me, really. You know, I, I saw a, a news story yesterday or the day before that was about some town in I want to say the northwest somewhere that's trying to take down its William McKinley statue. Uh, and that, that I, I think is a really fascinating little story, both in terms of how it connects with like, you know, this, the, the, uh, statue removal, uh, movement, you know, of, of the last few years, but also like reading the article and especially reading the comments, uh, it, it's really astounding how few people know about that particular moment in time. Right. And even when we do like, you know, talk about American imperialism or expansion in the 1890s in uh, textbooks or, you know, high school surveys, college surveys, it's often treated as this kind of like 
uh, aberration, you know, this moment where, uh, you know, for a few years we got into the Imperial game and then, you know, we kind of lost our minds over it for a while, uh, you know, conquered the Philippines and then kind of just uh, let it go, right? You know, we backed out and that was it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, you're spot on the money about it, it being like a, a this constant theme in American history going all the way back to the, you know, to independence and before. I think a lot about Jefferson's phrase, empire of liberty, you know. Um, yeah, it's it's a running theme for sure. Yeah, I mean, it still seems to be popular believed, popularly believed amongst just average people that basically with a few brief deviations, like you were saying, the United States was quote unquote isolationist until World War II or something like that, you know, and it's like, really, really, then, then how in the world did it expand from 13 colonies along the Atlantic coast to sea to shining sea plus Alaska and Hawaii and before long the Philippines, Puerto Rico, all these other things to say nothing of the informal empire of, you know, a bunch of different nations, uh, shifting, shifting collection of, of informal imperial possessions, including Cuba for almost 60 years. And like how, how in the world could that all have happened? A without imperialism being what's going on and B with isolationism dominating everyone's decision-making. I mean, what did just like all this land just sort of like offer itself to the United States. I mean, I, I look back to from, from the get go um, taking over trans Appalachia uh, as a, as a part of the end of the revolutionary war. And then very quickly after that, getting involved in, in Louisiana and Florida. And then right after that, getting involved with, with Texas and the war with Mexico. I mean, and then e- e- once each of these territories is formally annexed to the United States, then there's like a second phase of imperialism, which is reasserting control, or I should say asserting control over it. So, you know, nominally a territory gets ceded from Spain or France or whoever to the United States. But then there's the fact that you have all these people in it who are you know, natives and or Spanish and or French people, and they have to be one way or the other. They have to either be kind of brought into Team America or they have to be removed or or annihilated or what have you. I mean, it's just, it's amazing to me that that in this day and age, people are still kind of taking those euphemisms and, and cover phrases like manifest destiny and everything at face value and and not realizing that these are the exact same the exact same historical strategies that if any other nation does them, we immediately go, oh, that's imperialism. You know, if if Russia is expanding its territory, um, regardless of whether it's contiguous or overseas or not, we immediately go, oh, that's imperialism, you know. Um, but but when it's when it's Team America doing it, we suddenly have all these double standards and euphemisms, and it's suddenly, well, it's manifest destiny. Well, it's spreading democracy. Well, it's, you know, um, I don't know. It it just it just drives me nuts this this disconnect between how people think and speak about these things versus just, you know, it, it, it walks like a duck, it quacks like a duck and so forth. And yet we're being told like, this is anything but a duck. It just seems kind of, again, I I marvel at how effective the con job was 
of the guys who built the American empire to convince everybody it's not an empire. Yeah, well, I think that's right on the money. And, and to come back to the point about, you know, the 1890s and the thing about McKinley, I mean, you also mentioned these other points, right? like, you know, Manifest Destiny and Mexico in the 1840s being a big one. We're, I, I think, you know, those are all things that are part of most Americans' education. Um, you know, when we come up through high school or if you take, if you go to college and you take a survey course, those are terms that you're going to hear. But I think the issue comes when we want to think about that as a systemic issue or not, right? And it really is treated as these moments that are kind of an aberration. And there's not often much, I think, that asks us to connect the dots and think about those moments as anything other than these discrete kind of blips um, in in our past. So yeah, taking the bigger view and asking the questions, you know, in this case about empire that come out of that, I mean, it is something that we have a hard time doing. Now, I, uh, I also um, teach high school and uh, we were doing a unit on uh, India and looking at British imperialism in India and the pushback, you know, leading up to independence in the 40s. And one thing that I came across when I was fishing around for materials for that was a poll uh, that was done pretty recently. I think 2014 was the date for that, where uh, the BBC, uh, I think it was, polled people in Britain. And the question was just, are you proud of the British Empire? You know, are you proud of the achievements, of British imperial achievements in the past? And I think something like 60% said, uh, yeah, you know, in response to that. Like, yes, we are absolutely proud of this part of our past. Um, So... I think if you asked a similar question, you know, if you phrased it to Americans, you know, uh, are you proud of the achievements of the American empire? I think a lot of people would ask, you know, what empire, right? What are you talking about? Um, it's, a, it's a term that we have a hard time applying to ourselves. And I, I'm actually a little curious about this, you know, why, I mean, CJ, just based on your readings and your thoughts, you know, why do you think this is something that we have such a hard time, you know, a term that we have such a hard time applying to ourselves? Yeah, um, I'm I'm still thinking about this, and honestly, I'm on a new a new kind of round of research kick into just this very idea. This idea that there's this thread connecting the frontier experience from the earliest, you know, from the 17th century, right on up through you know the Plains Indian Wars and and all that. Um, there's a there's a thread connecting all of that along with all the the expansion into Spanish and French and so forth territory, all the different wars against the natives. And then from that to the civil war, and then from that to the overseas phase of imperialism over the last, you know, 130 years or so. So uh, this is, you know, one of the reasons I was really interested to talk to you because you seem to be one of the, one of the few people in the history podcasting world that seems to kind of get these connections and, and how there's all this continuity for centuries. And so I've, I've been asking myself this question of how, how did the United States come to be such a, a huge, powerful empire? And yet, as, as uh, Neil Ferguson put it like 15 years ago, it's an empire in denial. And I, I think part of it has to do with the American Revolution itself, because I think the American Revolution needs to be thought of as, as sort of occurring on two levels. And you have the more popular and radical grassroots level of the American Revolution that was more revolutionary, that was more radical, and that really thought the American Revolution was supposed to be about something rather than just changing the zip code of which oligarchs are overseeing the system 
that these territories are are you know governed by. So I, I think about you know like grassroots uh, sons of liberty types, and even a few of the more radical members of the so-called founding fathers. That there there was one one school of thought that the American Revolution is really supposed to be about something deep, about really making significant changes to society in the direction of liberty, however that's that's defined. But then there then there was the conservative aspect of the American Revolution as personified, especially by guys like like George Washington uh, and John Adams and some of the other the sorts of guys that are in a way kind of surprising to see amongst a group of of revolutionary rebels, given their background and their temperament and their attitudes. These are very much kind of small C conservative guys, you know, uh, and think about a guy like George Washington. I mean, he, he had very little reason given his, his background, his biography and his personality to be involved with the rebellion. And he was one of the wealthiest landowners in North America, perhaps the most at the time. And, you know, what makes a guy like that join a supposed revolution other than maybe it's not as revolutionary as, as we might think. And honestly, I've, I've come to the conclusion that George Washington probably would have been working with the loyalists and leading loyalist troops. If the British after during and after the seven years war hadn't snubbed him for a a commission in the British army, which he, he wanted really badly back around the seven years war and then also the British authorities in the colonies during and after the Seven Years' War got in the way of a few of his land schemes to claim even more gazillions of acres than he already was calling dibs on. And so I, I think George Washington really would have been a, a militant loyalist, if not for the fact that the British had kind of, you know, kind of personally pissed him off a couple of times regarding those things. So anyway, I, I look at the American Revolution, and I say, well, there's these two levels to it. There's one that's truly radical and revolutionary, and there's one that's more just like, basically, we want to cut cut London out of, out of the loop and have homegrown American elites and oligarchs in New York, Philadelphia, uh, eventually Washington, D.C., whatever, have them running a native-born imperial system. And, and that's why you see guys like Hamilton basically carrying over the British mercantilist financial system, all these things. So on the one hand, Americans, the, the rhetoric of the American Revolution sounds very anti-imperial, right? The, the ideals espoused in the Declaration of Independence about national self-determination and all these sorts of things. It sounds like they're rejecting the concept of empire rather than just rejecting the elites in London ruling over these territories in America. But in reality, I think that the guys who ultimately ended up in charge, for the most part, were guys who were these conservative revolutionaries that didn't really want to drastically overchange the system of the British Empire. They simply wanted to make it homegrown and make it at least, you know, in informal appearance, Republican in nature. So that's, that's kind of where my thinking is at, is that ever since the American Revolution, because all of that radical rhetoric about natural rights and self-determination became so uh, so like carved into the popular mind as what this was about, it has meant that the American elites, though they have wanted to build an empire and have built an empire, they, they haven't been able to speak openly about it very much because they know that if they started to, then average Americans might not get on board. Average Americans might go, wait a minute. I thought, uh, I thought empire was bad. I thought imperialism was bad. I thought we were all about, you know, the ideals of the preamble of the Declaration of Independence. And so they've had to do this massive con job 
of building an empire for 200 and some odd years, the whole time convincing the average folks that that's absolutely not what they're doing. So but those, those are my thoughts. I'm, I don't know what you think about it. I mean, I think this is one of the reasons why like mythology and narrative is so important. So like with the case that you're talking about with the, the, the narrative coming out of the revolution is like, okay, you know, we have been the victims of imperial policies to some extent, right? We, the American people as a whole have suffered under British imperialism. So we're going to do things differently. And I think you're right that that's really the start of this avowed anti-imperial American tradition. Uh, one of the interesting things I came across the other day uh, in, in doing this research on these early phases of Vietnam is, you know, so Ho Chi Minh in that period was really interested in getting American support against France you know, in the late 40s and as France is trying to reoccupy the country. And one of the things that he is saying over and over again to American uh, diplomats and military men and whoever else you can really get to listen to them is that, look, you know, you Americans have always done things differently. You have this anti-imperial tradition. And there's even one quotation I found where he's like, you know, you've never victimized like, you know, the people of Asia, like these, you know, Brits or French have, you know, you come from a totally different tradition. Now, I, I think he was, you know, not so blind as to, you know, not know about, you know, what America did in the Philippines or, you know, opening Japan at gunpoint or involvement in the Boxer Rebellion or any of that other stuff. I think he was very well aware of that. But the point is that there's a narrative that exists even, you know, well into the middle of the 20th century and beyond where the United States is this anti-imperial, like we are the anti-imperial great power, right? Um, So going back to the revolution, I mean, there's a couple of things that I think complicate the idea that it's it's this elite driven thing that's pushing you know American territory out like you know a huge part of what brings the revolution on in the first place right is the fact that the British are trying to control these American settlers out on the frontier who are pushing past the lines that the British set you know leading to you know stuff like Pontiac's rebellion and these wars that the British are really trying to control. It's also revealing, I think, that one of the first things that the uh, Continental Congress does in the 1780s is pass the uh, Northwest Ordinance, right? So figuring out how you can incorporate more territory in like a, a relatively democratic kind of way. So they're, they're concerned with this question of empire early on. But I think it's more complicated than it's just a question of, you know, elites pushing for more territory. And I know that your position is a little more complicated than that. But I also think it's important to acknowledge the role that ordinary Americans have in, like, both shaping the expansion, but then also, you know, those people who are pushing out into the frontier also have this vested interest in considering themselves as as spreading a system that's fundamentally good, right? And I I think that's, Mm, it's... A really key part of that, that we as citizens of this country also have kind of a vested interest in believing that, you know, our expansion is beneficial. It's not imperial. It's, it's democratic, right? So I think that's one of the things that makes Jefferson's formulation, the, the empire of liberty thing, um, so powerful as, as, a, as a kind of, you know, narrative or mythological tool, if we want to call it that. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's a, that's a good point. And what it makes me think of is that the American masses who oftentimes, as you're saying, are completely buying into imperialism, and yet at the same time, they, they don't want it to ever be, be called that, or very rarely do they ever, you know, other than brief weird moments here and there, are they comfortable with actually using words like empire and imperialism? 
And, and so what it makes me think of is that in a way, getting, getting back to my idea that this is, this is sort of a con job that the American people are in a way they're like willingly getting conned, like somewhere deep down, they might know better. Um, they're almost like the, the, the archetype of the willing fool or something like that, you know, where it's like, Maybe deep down subconsciously, a lot of them kind of know this is imperialism, but at the same time, like you were saying, everybody wants to to feel good about what they're doing, no matter how ugly it might be. And so, yeah, there's almost this like this like uh, unconscious urge to not call things what they are. You know, the the whole sort of going against Confucius's idea that the beginning of wisdom hmm. is to call things by their proper names. You know, so. Yeah, it would. It, no one wants to think that they're the bad guy, and so because through the the events of the American Revolution and a lot of the the rhetoric that came to surround it, a lot of the the population started to see empire and imperialism as having negative connotations. And yet they wanted to conduct a policy of imperialism because they wanted to, you know, grab that new land out west or whatever it might be. And so the way that they're basically salving their consciousness or their, their conscience is, you know, to have their cake and eat it too is to do the imperialism but not call it imperialism. And so in a way, yeah, it's not as top-down, one-sided as I as I made it sound of, you know, it's the elites just – pulling the wool over people's eyes that the people are like kind of in on it too, which, which makes sense. I mean, that's, that's often how, how really successful con jobs go down is people who kind of want to. Yeah, well, I think it's con. one of the things that makes that narrative so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, are, have you read a lot of William Appleman Williams? You know, I, I haven't read that much from him. I've read like a few short excerpts here and there. Um, but I'm certainly no expert in him. I know he's one of your main guys, right? Yeah, I'm I'm a huge fan and actually a, a lot of the way that you've covered stuff on your show made me just sort of assume that that you had read a lot of him. Although I'm I'm guessing that maybe maybe you haven't read as much him, but probably you've read like like maybe the next generation of historians who were influenced by him then I would guess. So, you know, maybe maybe you've you've imbibed a fair amount of his paradigm without without necessarily getting it directly from him from him or always realizing it because he made a big impact on the next generation or two of historians right after him. So there's, I mean, there's, there's a lot of great stuff by him. Contours of American history is like his, maybe his, his biggest really kind of in-depth scholarly work that goes all the way back to like 16th century England to trace these ideas that eventually became American imperialism all the way back um, to like the Elizabethan era, um, right on up through into the mid 20th century when he was writing. And he's got a lot of other stuff. I'm a big fan of Empire as a Way of Life is a little bit more polemical in places, but I think it's still really good. It's it's a more kind of stripped down version of a lot of the arguments he makes elsewhere. Uh, and then the first thing I ever read by him when I was in graduate school actually is the the tragedy of American diplomacy. And that probably is part of why that book is probably part of, of why, well, I see a lot of American history the way I do, but in particular, this idea that I was saying before that like there were these anti-imperial threads in the American revolution, but they ultimately didn't end up really dominating policy once the United States became an independent country. Um, 
and and basically the argument he makes in in the tragedy of American diplomacy is that the the United States government and the the elites who are really running it that they they turn against whenever they're faced with the choice between abiding by say the ideals of the Declaration of Independence and doing what is expedient for grabbing more resources and power and, and, and you know, economic control over things that they'll always choose the latter. And, you know, very rarely does anyone in a significant position of power come down on the other side uh, in a meaningful way against the, um, like against material interest and, and, and profit and expansion of resources and territory and that sort of thing. I, I wonder how much of this you could solve by teaching more like history of the United States and Latin America at a, a high school or maybe even earlier level, certainly at the college level and certainly at the high school level, I think. Cause like, you know, so much of the, the, the fiction that America has these phases where, you know, the countries kind of switch between bursts of, expansionism and then these long periods of, you know, this traditional American isolationism. It's like often when people talk about that, they're talking about the, you know, U S involvement in like great power politics and stuff like that. You know, George Washington with the no entangling alliances formula and stretching that out to, you know, being some kind of traditional thing. The only problem with that is that at the same time, there's this conflicting tradition that has to do with like massive intervention, often for economic reasons, like, all around the world, but especially in like Central and South America, you know, and that's a, a, a side of American history that I learned virtually nothing about uh, when I was in high school um, and up through college, actually. Um, and yet so much of, I think, like the big themes that we're talking about really get played out between like the U.S. and that part of the world, you know. If we're talking about other stuff too, like the role of the West and the frontier and kind of creating these traditions, it's like, if you want to put two and two together and look at kind of, you know, this, this bigger theme of American imperialism. I think you have to look at those two areas. I think that's really where it comes from. Okay. Yeah. You've, you've, you've obviously um, done several episodes that tie into that in a bunch of ways, this kind of the, the mythological story of the West and then contrasting it with the more kind of factual scholarly understanding of what the West was really like and what Western expansion really mm-hmm you know, what it really looked like. And I'd, I'd be interested to just hear you, you kind of like, um, you know, expand upon that a little bit. What, what the power of, of that myth and then the contrast of that with the reality, what it has meant to American history, both, both at the time and ever since, and like on into the, into more recent times. There's a moment that I think is kind of a nice stand in for the bigger themes um, in terms of like the connection between American continental expansion into the West and then the stuff overseas. And like, there's this moment in uh, the 1890s, early 1900s that I think is a really nice kind of symbol for how those things intertwine. So uh, in 1898 in the Spanish American war, there's this battle in Cuba where uh, Teddy Roosevelt uh, leads this regiment of troops that are like half cowboys and half like, uh, Harvard blue blood kind of guys that he knew from his, you know, uh, academic days, uh, leads them in this charge of this, uh, hill in Cuba. And, um, a couple of years after that, or it might even be as little as a year. Um, there's this American like rodeo show, 
that's led by a guy named Buffalo Bill. His actual name is William Cody. And uh, this is a show that he's been doing for a long time, like since the 1880s. And he has this act in the show that is like this frontier kind of scene. Like he has a bunch of these set pieces that he does in the rodeo show um, that are these battles between Native Americans on the one side and like cavalry troopers on the other side. And there's one that he does uh, that he's been doing for a while. That's like the culmination of the show. That's the last stand at Little Bighorn that he recreates. So the U.S. goes uh, to war in 1898. We fight this overseas war against Spain. There's this battle at San Juan Hill in Cuba. And then like the year after, Cody replaces the um, Custer's last stand with a new act that's like a recreation of the battle at San Juan Hill. So first of all, there's this question of like, what is this overseas um, battle and this imperial war, you know, doing in this Wild West show, right? What's the crossover there? And the answer, I think, is really that Americans see the same basic processes playing out in both scenarios. So uh, let me explain what I mean by that. In the Custer's Last Stand scenario, like overall in the Wild West show, the story is one of like, uh, savagery versus civilization. So Americans represent civilization. The wilderness and Native Americans in this show represent savagery. The Americans, you know, in general in this show are going out and fighting this war where those two forces come into conflict. In 1898, it's like he's trying to make the point that, and is actually very successful in doing so, that those same forces that were playing out on the frontier are now just like being bumped one step further uh, and, you know, in this war in Cuba and the Philippines and whatever, Americans are reenacting that exact same conflict. So it's this, it's like an archetype, right? And what happens over the course of the 20th century is that in different forms of like popular media that represent the West, that exact same thing is played out. So if you look at Westerns, like Westerns is starting, you know, in there are ones earlier, but really starting in the late 40s, and then it really kicks up in the 1950s, 1960s. It's like one of the most uh, popular genres in American media. So it's kind of like superhero movies today, but like times 10. And there's like dozens of these films being released every year. And in a lot of the Westerns, especially the ones uh, in the 50s and 60s that involve Americans fighting on foreign soil, usually it's over the border in Mexico, they represent those kind of conflicts as being part of the same kind of civilizing mission. And um, at the same time, you know, Americans are starting to fight a new round of conflicts in, you know, the so-called third world. And for audiences at the time, it's really not that hard to transpose the two things to see that like, look, just as we carried out this heroic mission in the West in um, you know, the past, in the 19th century and earlier, we're really doing exactly the same thing now. So this is something else that I'm really interested with, uh, you know, in my show is the role of popular culture and popular ideas about history, as opposed to academic ideas about history. I think pop culture has a much bigger role in shaping the way that we think about both the past and the present than anything people in the academy can do. Um, in a way, it's like, you know, if you think about the role of movies versus academic books, it's like, it's kind of amazing how powerless I think academics really are uh, when it comes to shaping like the way people think about the past compared to pop culture. 
uh, it's like no contest in, in my mind. So now it's kind of interesting to watch because there's this generation of historians right now that are really interested in trying to shape popular perceptions about the past and the present, usually on Twitter. Um, I think, uh, what's his face? Kevin Cruz is like the, the guy who's probably the most prominent at this, but there are a bunch of others too. So they think they can change the way we think about history through social media. I think it's probably too early to tell if they're right or not, but I think it does still kind of fit into this pattern of like pop culture just still being this unbelievably dominant thing when it comes to the way we think about both what's going on in the world today and, you know, our, our own past and the connection between those two. Um, and just in terms of audience too, I mean, so if we want to come back to the question of how we might think about podcasts and like our audience and a role of shaping the way people think about history or shaping debates that are going on right now. I mean, one thing that I've always admired about you is that you're very upfront with your politics. You're not cagey about it. Um, you state right up front and repeatedly in, you know, episode after episode, here's what I believe, here's what I stand for. And here's how my, my political beliefs shape the way I think about the past. For me, I, I tend to take uh, kind of the opposite tack where I try to downplay my politics as much as possible. I try to downplay myself actually in, in my show. Like I don't think of myself as a, a, a personality. I, th- I prefer to let that stuff kind of inform what I say without saying it straight up. Um, how do you, um, one thing I've been curious about for you is how do you find that shapes your audience? Do you find that it tends to limit your audience to a particular slice of the political spectrum or do you find that it helps broaden your audience or what, what kind of impact do you think that has? Uh, I think it has some contradictory, uh, some contradictory impacts from what I can tell. Cause on the one hand uh, I can definitely tell even for example, looking at some of my uh, worst reviews of my podcast that I've gotten. And uh, I don't, I don't look at those too much of yeah, no very often anymore, but you know, when you're new and you're just starting to get reviews, it's like it's hard to not read them all. And, and, yeah, and definitely some of the negative ones I've gotten are basically like, uh, I remember one, I think their their title for their review was, this is ideology, not history, you know, which to me is, is like, that's someone who doesn't understand what history really is at all. But definitely, definitely some people are put off by the fact that I, I just, you know, am, am pretty upfront about things. But then there are other people who appreciate it, and, and not just, you know, people who agree with me now, I'm, I'm, sure that probably um, a, a very strong majority of my audience has worldviews that are pretty similar to mine, if not identical. And it does allow me to like appeal to particular like venues and shows and, and events and things that are geared towards people of that, that ideology. And, and that helps with, with building an audience but at the same time, I know for sure because I hear from them, and some of them are even regular financial supporters of my show, that there are plenty of people who appreciate my show who don't agree with me on everything and maybe are coming from a, a very different perspective, but they're the sorts of people who are you know, intellectually open and curious and that those people who are fans of my show come from a very different perspective they often are huge fans of my show because i guess they appreciate the fact that uh that i am upfront about it 
and that I still do my best to be intellectually honest. I'm someone who believes that objective history is a fantasy that's impossible. But I do think there is such a thing as honest history and that honest history comes from things like being willing to admit places where you could be wrong, you're not sure about things, being willing to admit when your own kind of biases are pushing you one way, but you have to admit that the evidence points the other direction, things like this. So, you know, basically, I I think I get people who, of the people I get who are of of different belief systems than mine, they tend to be the ones I'd be the most interested in interacting with anyway, because they tend to be the ones, I'm someone who's who's very kind of open and and curious when it comes to ideas and things. So like, I don't have a problem with, with, you know, discussing ideas with someone of very different viewpoints from me, as long as like me, they, they can be, you know, decent about it, intellectually honest about it. They're not just hacks pushing for a particular party or a particular agenda. I'm, I'm not interested in people like that of, of any ideological stripe, to be honest with you. So yeah, that, that's been my take. I mean, I, I figured, you know, I, I would just kind of be upfront about things and then people can take what I say with that as, you know, kind of a grain of salt, perhaps that like, yeah, well, you know. Yeah. I count that as a huge win. If like you can find people who are on the opposite side of the spectrum from you, who still really like listening to you and maybe even are like willing to give you money. You know, I think that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely, you know, gives me a sense of validation because it's, it's one thing to have people supporting you who pretty much agree with you down the line. And that's great. And I'm, I'm, I'm very thankful for those people too. But yeah, I mean, I, I see it as more of a, um, more of an accomplishment, both both in the sense of these are these are obviously people who are pretty sophisticated thinkers that they can still get value out of someone coming from a very different perspective, and that you know I also try to, especially on days when I'm like exhausted and still have to put in work on the podcast, um, I, I try to take it as a as a compliment of craftsmanship too. That like, hey, you know, even someone from a different ideological perspective still. Yeah, well, I think that's a huge thing too. That even with the huge amount of work that's out there, people are still really starved for quality content. And I think if you can put out stuff that's of high quality, no matter what stripe uh, politically you belong to, uh, there are going to be people out there who respond to that. Now, I think there are also going to be people who will hate, you know, pretty much anything that has an interpretive slant to it that they don't agree with. You know, I think a lot about, uh, and I worry a lot about uh, polarization and, you know, people not being willing to listen to one side or the other. And it's like, I don't know, I think there's a, a, a place for really strong, like evidence-based good history from, you know, whatever side, as long as it's presented well, and as long as it's, you know, back, as long as it's honest, I think, as you say, that people will respond to. And, you know, I don't have any fantasies about like, oh, you know, a history podcast can cure the the partisan divide and bring people together. But I, I think that there is a role, uh, you know, to, to some small extent, you know, if you can get people to listen to something from the opposite side, I think that's really valuable. And I think that's one of the valuable things about studying history too, putting yourself in the perspective of something that you don't, you know, uh, you might not agree with or like, especially, um, but just the act of trying to understand something, I think puts you a few steps ahead. Tacking back for a moment to the the West and, and all the mythology and the connections. One of the things that I wanted to mention that I, I really um, appreciated 
in your episode on uh, Buffalo Bill and, and the Wild West show and all that, which um, was, was a great episode, was that I think at the beginning of the episode, you actually started off talking about the movie American Sniper. And then you tied that back into to this episode on the late 19th century American West and, and depictions of it and all that. And it made me think of how much continuity there is in, in a lot of ways, both conscious and unconscious, like that it's still a common phrase for American soldiers off in some you know, trouble spot in the world when they're sent off to patrol a, a very dangerous area or whatever, they'll refer to it as Indian country and that Indian war lingo is still sprinkled throughout American military jargon, right? I mean, when we started developing helicopter equipped infantry units, we immediately labeled them air cavalry, you know, and, uh, and, and uh, armored units, you know, tanks and things got labeled the uh, armored cav and a lot of our, our military's uh, equipment and things, you know, we've got Black Hawk helicopters, Apache helicopters, Tomahawk missiles. I mean, it's, it's really quite astounding how much continuity there's been in, in the popular mind. Oh, dude, have you seen the uh, Mel Gibson movie, We Were Soldiers? Yes, it's been a long time, but yes. Oh, man. You, yeah, give that one a, a second watch and keep that in mind because the whole movie is about like avenging little bighorn, like on, on some level is there's the whole thing where like, you know, they're, they're surrounded. It's about the, the Aya Drang battle in 1965 in Vietnam. And it's like the, it's Custer's unit, right? It's the seventh cavalry going in. There's a great scene where, you know, Mel Gibson is like introducing the, the concept of air cavalry to the troops. And he's like, we will ride into battle and this will be our horse. And the helicopter just like blasts in. Um, There's, there's a lot of stuff about Custer where they're obsessed with, you know, this last stand scenario and like, are we going to suffer the same fate? Uh, and then, you know, there's some scene with, I think it's Sam Elliott who plays the the first sergeant or whatever, or the sergeant major, Sergeant Major Plumley. And uh, there, there's some scene where, you know, it's the middle of night and they're like surrounded on the battlefield and Mel Gibson's like, maybe we're going to suffer the same fate as Custer. And Sam Elliott says, sir, Custer was a pussy. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, and that's it in a nutshell, you know? Um, and I think that that same kind of thing, like just reenacting the same kind of battles over and over again is like, that's one of the things that made American snipers so interesting is that it's like exactly the same thing. There was another one more recently that didn't get as much traction called uh, 12 strong. I think uh, that was based on some real thing where the special forces or whatever in Afghanistan, you know, had this, uh, famous kind of run through the battlefield where they were on horses. Uh, and the cowboy stuff is like all over that movie too. It's really interesting. But it's surprising to me because in the, the Vietnam literature, and it's like, this is the stuff that shaped the generation of historians like William Appleman Williams or uh, like Richard Slotkin for, you know, my kind of like side of stuff that I've read really heavily in and been influenced by. Um, they're all writing at this time where Westerns are like the main thing in American movies. And it's a huge thing in American pop culture, you know, both on like TV and on the big screen. So like, it's the common kind of lingo. And I'm not surprised that in the Vietnam War, the language of, uh, you know, the Westerns and the Indian Wars were all over that. But it actually is really surprising to me that it's, it's still here at a time when Westerns are not a huge genre. Like, it's still part of our common vocabulary, even though it's not as important in pop culture as it was, let's say, in 1965, right? It's just uh, such a 
a testament to how persistent that stuff is. And I think that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I've enjoyed some of the coverage you've done of just the overall, like the archetype of the cowboy and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very interested in, in those sorts of things that, you know, when you watch even films that superficially are not Westerns, very often they still are Westerns, either they're, they're space Westerns or they're Westerns set in a modern urban environment, but with a semi-rogue cop is, as the lone gunfighter now, whether it's Dirty Harry yeah. or whether it's, you know, John McClane uh, with his catch, catchphrase of yippee Kaye, motherfucker. I mean, it's like, you know, <laughs> it really is like right there hidden in plain sight in a way. Yeah, I think all you got to do is just look at Clint Eastwood's career. Like the transition from uh, Man With No Name to Dirty Harry is a really interesting one. It's like almost the same character, but with a few twists. Right. You know, still recognizably this cowboy thing. Yeah, and then then from there back back for Unforgiven for a deconstructionist Western, which which I really enjoy. And then before you know it, he's doing, you know, Gran Torino and American Sniper and all these things just kind of... I don't know. Every, every time, every time Clint Eastwood does something that's a little bit more sophisticated and deconstructionist, then he'll come back and do something completely uh, conventional, I guess, in, in sort of his, his ideological wheelhouse. Yeah. Well, you got to keep both sides happy. I, I guess, I guess. And I, you know, he probably, he probably his, himself is, is conflicted and contradictory, you know, in terms of his thinking on a lot of these things. Well, one other one other thing related to um, your podcast episodes that you've done so far that I wanted to to bring up is this idea of Anglo-Saxonism and kind of, of xenophobia and racial issues and whatever, and how how this ties into both westward expansion in the 19th century and then to overseas imperialism in the 20th century. And this is something that I think either gets oversimplified one way or the other. You know, you you get either, for lack of a better term, kind of left-wing understanding that basically like the United States is just, you know, a nation that's completely founded on racism. Everything it does is racism. And that's kind of all you need to understand about American history is just like racist start to finish. And, you know, it's, it's, a bit oversimplified and heavy-handed that way versus the kind of right-wing nationalist interpretation, which is, what are you talking about? There's no racism anywhere, even in, you know, slavery and Indian wars and, you know, uh, taking over the Philippines. There's no racism there. Um, but I, I appreciate the fact that in some of your episodes touching on this, you, you treat it in a more sophisticated uh, kind of a way that it really is a thing. It really is there. It's in the words of the leading figures and intellectuals of these time periods but at the same time it's it's not so simplistic so could, could you talk a little bit about the the role that anglo-saxonism played for for these people whether it's owen worcester teddy roosevelt um i don't know if you've talked about him much but i know henry cabot lodge good buddy of teddy roosevelt uh, Frederick Remington, who I didn't know, I didn't know the degree to which he was like a hardcore Anglo-Saxonist racist. I was, I was surprised when you got to that part where he was like fantasizing about a race war against the immigrants. That was like, whoa. Yeah. Well, all right. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I can speak more. Uh, I I can only really speak about this stuff 
with any authority in like the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, that's kind of my wheelhouse. And I, I'm not too sure about it extending, you know, or at least not well enough to like say anything meaningful about it, like on either side of that period. But um, yeah, I think it did play a big role in that kind of high period of American imperialism, like 1880s, 1890s, early 1900s. Um, in that whole period, it's like a big part of the justification for why American leaders felt they had the right to, you know, take our uh, place in the sun and, you know, rule other parts of the world for them. At the same time, though, like, I do agree with you that the the, the kind of left-wing view of how American expansion in that period in particular was, like, really heavily racially driven, I, I think that's a strong part of it. But I think it's to overstate the case that it was all of it. Right? And there's another tradition, too, like thinking about American foreign policy, that it's entirely based on material interests. And that things like uh, ideology or maybe even race don't really play much of a role, but it's all about the dollars. Um, it's interesting, too, thinking about William Appleman Williams and that school of, of, of thought of foreign policy, and then also thinking about like the, the kind of new left uh, scholars in like the 60s and 70s, um, and they're thinking about it. Going back to the Puritans, I know I said I wasn't going to comment on earlier stuff, but uh, it's really interesting to look at books that were written about both American foreign policy and the earlier frontier stuff in that time period, because uh, the material interest side of things, like looking at material interests as the determining factor in American foreign policy is so dominant in the way that they think even about like the Puritans who are unbelievably like driven by religion and ideology alongside the other stuff. So uh, there's a book that I, I have always been fascinated by since I read it called the invasion of America by Francis Jennings. And that came out in the mid late seventies, I think. And that book had a huge impact on the way people thought about uh, Puritans and the frontier in general. And he really stresses, to the exclusion of almost everything else, the fact that the Puritans, you know, engaged in wars against groups like the Pequots or eventually the Wampanoag, you know, in King Philip's War uh, later on, that because they wanted land and that was it. Like religion or, you know, some kind of ideological mission didn't play any role at all in what they did, according to that school of thinking. When you come back to the stuff in the, you know, around the turn of the century, turn of the 20th century in the United States, thinking about our wars against Spain, you know, the war uh, in the Philippines after that, it's like, there are these really one-sided views out there that say it's like all one thing or all the other. Um, so in terms of Anglo-Saxonism, like, I think we have to be a little careful when we look at someone like Owen Wister, uh, the author of The Virginian, which is this book that kind of created this archetypal cowboy that would go on to influence like John Wayne and, you know, all that other stuff. Uh, and Frederick Remington, who did the same thing in art. I think it's important to recognize that the racial stuff found, uh, formed like a really strong part of their background and racial ideas about the West formed like a big part of how uh, they shaped their art. But if you want to look at how that affected the way people thought about stuff like foreign policy and, you know, overseas imperialism, it's like, I think it's important to recognize that it's just one part of the picture um, and not the whole picture. So I don't know. Did, did that kind of answer what you were looking for or was that a little too roundabout? 
Yeah. Well, no, no. I mean, I, I, I agree with the idea that it's the, these sorts of like giant historical trends and things that they're, they're never monocausal. And I always get, I always get a little bit um, turned off by, by anyone who, who gives the answer that it's, Oh, it's all this or all that. It's all, it's all materialism. It's all ideas because obviously there, there's always an interplay of, you know, when you're looking at any any empire, whether it's the American, the British, the Roman, I mean, there there's always both like cold, hard material and economic interests and motivations and belief systems. And usually the the empires that that emerge that kind of grow the largest are the ones that have a lot of both, because it seems to me like it, it's very difficult to build and maintain an empire just on pure ideas or just on pure materialism, because I don't know, people, people need both in order to, for, you know, many, many generations keep supporting this, this same imperial project. And I think William Appleman Williams kind of evolved over his career. I, I think he may have started off leaning more towards the materialist side, being more kind of Marxist influenced, but I think that pretty early on in, in his work, he he evolved and really started, you know, bringing in ideas as well, and and I, I think he did, he did a pretty good job of kind of synthesizing the two together and showing that there's this there's this mutual kind of two way back and forth interaction between the world of ideas and the world of material interests. Well, I think something that we both deal with on our shows is like this question of how do you get people to reconsider things that we take for granted as a part of our history or part of our world? And how do you get people to think critically about that? And one of the things about the approach that we've both been talking about where you are very upfront or, you know, the the historian or podcaster or whatever is very upfront about saying, look, this is the, however unsavory it might be, like, here's the one kind of reason And especially if it's one that kind of implicates people, like I I think we're we're talking a little bit about that with the rationale for empire. Uh, Are we willing to be implicated in uh, or like recognize our own complicity in parts of our past that might be kind of dangerous or unsavory? Um, And then how do you get people to recognize that in ways that are not going to turn people off immediately? I think that's a huge part of the puzzle. Um, and that's also one of the reasons why I'm curious about your, you know, more politically overt stance versus mine, which is a little more covert. Although I, I try to be, you know, as honest as I can without being explicit, if that makes sense. I think that's actually, so when I was in grad school, I had several professors who were both historians and pundits. So they had kind of two hats that they wore. One of them was, you know, publishing, you know, scholarly articles and books, um, teaching classes. And then the other side was one where they would write think pieces that are, you know, extremely partisan, you know, one side or the other. There's one in particular who I had who was very open and honest, but uh, perhaps maybe a little extreme in this way of linking pretty much everything that uh, this professor studied to Trump. And it was almost like, and, and I think still is for this professor, kind of an, an obsession, you know, like it is for so many others. This is something I see on social media a lot too, is these academic professors who want to comment on 
politics are limited by a couple of things. The first thing is that they have often kind of a narrow expertise. So their understanding of current events is often shaped by like, look, this thing in the present world is just like this thing that I study. Uh, and that's kind of the, the, the entirety of the frame of reference. But then there's also this obsession with the connection to just one or two things in the present world, right? And often, I think especially for liberal professors right now, it boils down to Trump. So one thing I'm curious about for you is, you know, how hard do you focus on drawing parallels between uh, incidents in the past and like political stuff in the present? And if that is a major concern for you, you know, how do you present that in a way that is not going to turn people off immediately? Well, I, I think no matter what you do, a certain percentage of people will get turned off immediately. Yeah, that, that's um, the truth. So that's the truth. Yeah. So, I mean, part of it is, you know, I, I just, I just want my show to be as honest a representation of, of my own thinking and, and my own kind of best conclusions I can come to at any given time based on what I know and sort of like let the chips fall where they may, you know, if, if someone is just completely alienated by that, then fine. They weren't, they weren't going to be a listener to my show anyway. That's kind of how I look at it. Almost sort of like a, a little bit of Calvinism there. Like eh, they weren't going to be a listener. <laughs> yeah. I like that comparison, but um, yeah, but um the as far as as drawing explicit parallels to to current events or recent events i mean this is obviously pretty subjective and arbitrary at the end of the day but basically my view is i try not to do it artificially in other words i try not to shoehorn something into something else in a way that feels contrived or forced but but at the same time you know i don't i don't shy away from doing it when i feel like there really is some kind of an important parallel or some kind of an important connection you know like for example what i brought up before we were talking about about um how modern military jargon is still laced with indian war terminology right like to me that's that's not an artificial thing where i'm trying to shoehorn something into my into my ideology about current events so that's that's basically where I come down, you know. I it, but I but I always I always try to be intellectually honest with it. Where if I'm saying, oh, this thing that happened, you know, hundreds or even thousands of years ago has some parallels to something going on right now or that going on in recent decades, I always I always try to remember to be intellectually honest and have a little bit of humility and go, but I could be wrong. You know, there's there's all these other things that are different. You know, um, and and that every I mean, every era, ultimately, there clearly are some some patterns and things that pop up repeatedly in different historical eras, but at the same time also, obviously, every every time period is unique in, in infinite ways. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's always dangerous to, to make like a one-to-one correlation and be like, oh, look, because the Roman Empire, you know, went through this pattern, that means the United States is going to go through the exact same thing. It's like... Yeah, well, during the, like, the Syrian, you know, the, the refugee crisis and you know, in 2016, or um, I guess early 2017, or whenever it was, the the Trump administration, you know, ban on refugees from certain countries. It's like, I, I, I saw so many things that were like, well, this is just like, you know, what happened in the Roman Empire, and, you know, the, refu- the refugee crisis that they mismanaged, and it's exactly the same. Recently, with the impeachment stuff, you know, with some 19th century historians I follow, there was a big thing a while ago about uh, how, how, um, 
like, can you arrest a, a president or can a president be submitted to criminal charges? And there was something about how, like, you know, Ulysses Grant had something, you know, when he was president. And it's like, like the situations are not really comparable, you know. But I also think that's one benefit that we have with a slower release schedule and also with our interests, because with each episode that I do, like, I, I often do think there's some kind of hidden or not so hidden, I guess I should say. Like, there's some kind of parallel between the situation that I'm researching and something that I see still operative in the world today. But it's not something that's like of the moment, like the crisis du jour. I, it's something that I I consider to be like a, a deeper, longer operating, you know, kind of trend. And that also helps the episodes not be immediately outdated, right? Like, you know, you you put you put it out. There's something else that happens. Uh, you know, a month later that kind of surpasses or changes the thing that you were trying to comment on. That's like, uh, all right, you know, why would someone want to go back and listen to the earlier thing that you put out? So I'd like these to be hopefully things that are still relevant in a year or five or, or 10, you know? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I really want as much as possible for, for a lot of my episodes to be pretty evergreen and, sort of timeless in a way. And to be honest with you, I, I don't, and for a long time have not followed current events terribly closely in terms of like day-to-day politics and, and things like that. You know, I mean, I, I, I pay enough attention to kind of know like if world war three is maybe possibly about to happen or something. Um, but, but yeah, I, I tune out a lot of the day-to-day stuff because very often it seems like whatever the, the popular mind and popular media thinks is like the most important story of the day is something that literally in a week, no one will be talking about. And, you know, in 10 years, no one will even remember. So like, like what you were saying, I'm, I'm much more interested in the bigger picture. Like I'm, I'm not interested as much in the weather. I'm interested in like the climate over a long period of time. Yeah. I love that comparison. So if, if you got a, a, a few more minutes, there, there was one more thing I wanted to ask you about that I'm curious about, which is um, I know you've been, you've been teaching, and um, I think you, you said at the high school level and maybe for a year or two, I forget. Yeah, this is my and, first year. Okay, wow. So, so not quite done with your first year then. So I'm interested to hear what your experiences have been in that world. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of the, the type of school that you're at and then how things have been going. Oh, yeah, dude, absolutely. I could talk for like many more hours about this, um, but I'll try to be brief. So, uh, yeah, I I teach uh, at a Jewish day school in the Boston area. Um, It's my first year teaching there, my first year teaching high school period. And uh, I teach, this year I'm teaching English and history, but next year I'm going to be just doing history like exclusively. So it's ninth graders and 10th graders and... Um, the level is very mixed. So there are students, you know, you have some who, and this is typical for um, any class that you teach. There are some students who are really gung-ho and into it. Um, and there are students who could not care less about what you have to say. Um, so finding a way to bring people in uh, and doing that like in real time on a day-to-day basis is the number one challenge. Just like, you know, every single day when you go in, every class that you plan, it's like, okay, how am I going to get them to care about what I have to say um, and what we're going to be looking at? So that's been interesting. We talked a little bit about this, I think, after uh, you did your talk at Harvard, which was about the role of like, you know, how different it is to teach 
or to talk to an audience that's voluntary versus involuntary. And, you know, at some level, all the kids in my classroom are there, you know, in an, in, for involuntary reasons. You know, they, they might have uh, chosen the school. Some of them might like the class, but, you know, at the end of the day, they don't really have a choice. So if you have this kind of captive audience, it's like there are things that you know are important. There are things that you might be excited about, but you have to find the right kind of key for them. Uh, that's going to unlock it. There has to be some kind of connection. Um, otherwise, they tend to to shut down. And because it's not a lecture class, because the class is about them doing history, not like just passively taking it in, um, you have to find a way to make them care about it in the first five minutes. So I'm hoping that as a podcaster, this is also going to make me stronger because it's a similar kind of thing, right? There's a big market out there. There are a million different shows that they can listen to. Uh, if you don't win them over in... I said five minutes, but it's really the first 10 to 30 seconds, then you are going to have a very hard time either in, you know, for a podcast growing your show or having a successful class for your students. So I, my, my, one of my big takeaways is that, that that first minute or so, you know, between 10 seconds, a minute, five minutes, that opening of the class is the, the key part. The curriculum is interesting too, because it's a little all over the place. And I've had to educate myself a lot about this stuff as the year has gone on. Um, so I don't teach U.S. I teach um, modern world histories, and the units we do are like. So we started with a unit about uh, 19th century Europe and the French Revolution. We then jumped way over to India and did a unit about that, 19th and 20th century, uh, or at least up through independence. And um, we're doing a unit on China right now with a focus on the on Mao and the Cultural Revolution. And then we're doing a final unit on uh, the Islamic Revolution in Iran. So it's like really all over the place, bouncing around like these world history classes often do. For a lot of those topics, the kids don't have like any innate interest in them. And there, there's, there's some kind of key I, that I, I believe is out there anyway. And some days you're successful in finding it. Uh, some days you're not. But um, I mean, I, I kind of went into the year thinking that high school students would have an innate interest in finding out about like people and cultures that come from a totally different place from their own. But I'm learning that that's actually a really hard sell. Uh, and that it's actually quite hard to engage them unless you can find something that's like, here's the similarity, not here's the difference. So I'm sure there are ways to do that in an engaging way, but Hey, you know, I'm, it's my first year. I'm super green. So we'll still, it's still a work in progress. You know, I'm looking forward to next year and having a chance to do it all over again. Yeah. I mean, Really, my my experience, both personally and other people who've been in teaching that I know, I mean, they always say, like, your first few years, you're basically just trying to tread. Yeah, the water. learning curve yeah. is brutal. It sucks. <laughs> it's so hard. Yeah. Um, are you, do you have a fair amount of, of kind of elbow room and academic freedom where you're at? Or do you have a, a are you fairly micromanaged? Do you have a, a fair amount of, like curriculum that you have to stick to closely or is it more just kind of open-ended course outline? So I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate to teach at a school that does give me a lot of academic freedom. Like there's a, a really, you know, a lot of leeway for me to come in on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, we, we know roughly like what topics and what content we're going to use, but what you do with that content and the way that you uh, present it to the students, the way you spin that, is really kind of up to you. So, you know, each class has these things called learning goals, like these objectives that you're trying to reach with the students. So whatever you have in mind with that content to get them to that place is uh, up to you. 
So yeah, nice bit of leeway. That's good. I mean, that, that makes all the difference. Um, just to be able to do things your way and kind of pick which sort of micro topics to cover in a, in a given, you know, it's like, it's one thing if you've got say something that says like, all right, uh, cover world war two. Okay, fine. Then that gives me a, a wide open blank canvas to decide like, you know, what parts of world war two do I think are most interesting that I also think they will think are interesting because it'll help if I think it's interesting. Um, and, and then, you know, if I, if I also within what I think is interesting, try to figure out what they'll think is interesting. Like that's more likely to give better results than if you're just going by a completely prepackaged curriculum. That's like, Oh, you got to cover this subtopic, even if it's something you personally find very boring or unimportant and like how in the world are you then going to sell it to them? Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, this is, this is really good stuff. Yeah. My brother teaches third grade in uh, North Carolina and he teaches uh, in a public school. So he's really beholden to the, you know, the state standards and the micromanagement I think for him is way worse than it is for me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, in much of the country in, in public K through 12, it's, it's pretty terrible and, and aspects of it are starting to filter upward into the, the state colleges and things like where I'm at. I mean, it's still no, still nowhere near as bad. And I, I still can't, you know, there are some aspects of my job I can complain about, but academic freedom is, is still pretty good for me. So I'm, I'm grateful for that, but I, I worry because it seems like a lot of the, the negative trends in K through 12 sort of slowly filter their way up over time. We're like a decade or two behind K through 12 on some of these. Yeah. Well, you know, one, one thing I do think is interesting, just thinking about like coming from a college environment to a high school environment is that I think, you know, even in public schools, I think they're at least at the high school level, they tend to be a bit ahead of where colleges are in terms of like teaching how to do history. Cause if you think about college level, it's like your standard course format is the survey where you're sitting as a student, it's like you're not really doing history on a day-to-day basis. You're sitting in a lecture hall and you're listening to information, right? You're, you're learning passively and you're taking it in. And it's a little more skewed towards like mastery of the body of facts. But at the high school level, I think even, you know, with state standards that are, are kind of crappy often, um, there is more of a focus on like historical skills, right? Like how do you think about history? How do you think critically about evidence? You know, stuff like that. Uh, it's funny that that college and high school are based on such different kind of formats. Because if you think about like other fields, like often, you know, in science classes where like there's kind of a, like, yeah, there are lectures, but there are also labs that you do. For your standard like history survey, it's like you sit in a lecture class for most of the year and then you have some kind of paper that you write, but you haven't really been told like how to think critically about evidence. You haven't really learned how to do something as basic as like quote properly. It's the, the focus is entirely on content knowledge, not on skills. So that is one like semi bright spot, I think for high school, but yeah, I mean, so many other areas, it's just kind of a mess. Yeah. I think probably one of the issues in college very often is the combination of large classes. And, you know, if you have a, if you have a huge class, there's, limitations on really what you can do um you, you kind of have to keep things i don't know kind of standardized broad brush sort of sort of ways of both teaching and, and evaluating and then there's also the fact of time where most college classes like a given class you have them for less than 3 full hours a week for one semester 
And so, I don't know, th- these are the, the sorts of constraints I often find myself up against when I have some cool idea like, oh yeah, this would be a neat project for them to do. And I'm like, wait a minute, I'd have to, I'd have to deal with like a hundred of those and yeah, people that I have for, you know, 50 minutes, three times a week. And then I, I have to ultimately be like, I guess we'll just not do that one, you know? Um, but these are the, the sorts of, of, of annoying constraints you run up against that when you, when you get to your podcast, you can just say like, all right, I want to do five hours on this one topic that I think is interesting. And, you know, if, <laughs> if uh, people don't, don't agree with me, then fine, they can go listen to something else. So you get that, that ultimate freedom. Yeah. Man, how does it feel to be done with the Civil War show that you were doing? Because that's like, what is it, like 28 hours all told? Yeah, yeah, it was tough. Oh, man, that's epic. It was tough. It's there, there were huge projects. Yeah, yeah. And I still have one more bonus episode for my, my supporters that is still in the works that's going to zero in specifically on the weaponry and a little bit of like the tactics and how they were used and that sort of thing. So still not 100% done, but... um you know, the the main portion of it is done. And I really, I, I look back at that thing and I still don't know how I made it through. There were multiple times along the way where I was just like having, having doubts that I would ever get done with it. So yeah, I mean, it, it must be how people feel who, um, you know, work on some giant book that they write or something like that. It's like when you finally get it done, you're proud that you did it, but you also look back and think like, wow, if I had known it was going to be this much work, I don't know if I would have done this thing. Yeah. Well, sometimes, yeah, with like some history books, you flip open the introduction and it's like the inception of this project was 10 years ago when I did it. It's like, oh my God. Yeah. I, I couldn't spend 10 years with one project. I'm way too ADD with mine. I have like, the the only problem with doing deep dives is that it just, it keeps your bucket list like really long, you know? Yeah. And it's, it can be frustrating sometimes because like right now I'm about to start in the series that the episodes are going to be shorter than I usually do. I'm experimenting with that, but like I know it's going to be four parts um, to tell the story the way I want to do. And it's like, okay, I'm signing up for like a year, year and a half for this probably. Am I really okay with that? And like thinking about everything else that I might want to do in the meantime. So one thing I liked about the way you did yours actually is that you sprinkled like these other, you have like multiple running series, which I think is really cool. Uh, I don't know how you find time for that, but uh, it's really nice to have like two or three different things running simultaneously and then being able to kind of bounce back and forth. So I don't know, maybe that's a model I'll, I'll try out in the future too. Yeah. I mean, I, I like, I like variety and then I still, I still do some, some standalone shows and, you know, I, I do a lot of solo shows, but then I also do, do interview shows like this with guests and that sort of thing. So um, I, I just um, kind of try to make it like the, the podcast that I like. And a lot of the podcasts I like are, are sort of variety shows in their format. So I incorporated that. And then as far as, um, you know, switching back and forth and having like non-consecutive series and that sort of thing, that's honestly just my own ADD in a way where like um, to, to take the Civil War as an example, I mean, I, I just got to points where like I was burnt out on that topic and I really couldn't bring myself to read anything more on it for, you know, a few months or or work on it for a few months and and something else would would catch my fancy and to be like, all right, let me just stop and do, do a couple episodes on this other completely unrelated topic. You know, it, that's basically just me catering to my own, what I, what I saw as kind of a defect, but I guess some of the listeners uh, must, must also kind of like the variety. So I guess it ends up working out um, 
to be a little bit of a blessing and not just a curse as I, I sort of saw it. I saw it as like, man, why can't I, you know, just drill down on the civil war and get it done in six months instead of taking all these side paths and, you know, talking about the, the draining of the Everglades for a while and, you know, all these other things I did along the way. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just sort of the same way as how you're describing uh, yourself, which is, you know, I've, I'm, I'm interested in a lot of different things and I always sort of jump around. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'm not the, the biggest Howard Zinn fan, but he did write a lot about this idea of like how history should be kind of a marketplace of ideas where there are as many possible viewpoints out there as, you know, evidence and good work will allow. And then, you know, listeners get to, to kind of do that. You know, they get to pick and choose and read or in our case, listen around. And I kind of think like with the explosion of this DIY podcast stuff that we've been talking about, it's kind of like bringing us one step closer to realizing that. And the thing that I worry about is like, is it something that's going to contribute more to the world we live in where people get to kind of pick and choose their own reality? Or is it going to contribute to something that's a little more open-ended and, you know, more vibrant in terms of a, like an actual debate. So that's, that's kind of the goal. And that's one thing that I really enjoyed about your civil war series was like, there were some books that you drew on for that series that, you know, are very familiar, you know, like the James McPherson stuff or whatever. But then there are other books like um, CJ, I'm spacing on the author's name, but uh, the book is um, freeing slaves, enslaving free men. Oh, yeah, yeah. The title. Emancipating slaves, enslaving free men by uh, Jeffrey Hummel. Yeah. That's the one. So like, I had never heard of that book before, but it was fascinating getting that kind of, uh, you know, very different, very uh, hard line in its own way kind of interpretation of people like Lincoln, who, you know, right now, like with, I think there are going to be a lot of people who, um, you know, disagree with that point of view and the one, you know, the interpretations that you put forward in that show. But what I found so refreshing and actually addicting about listening to it was that, we're in this time right now with the you know debate over Confederate monuments and Civil War memory, uh, where people are like, by and large, really hunkering down on one side or the other. Right? There's this real pressure to either say that the Confederates did nothing wrong, uh, or that they were traitors who should have you know been all put against the wall and shot. And you know, the Lincoln and the Union represented this this kind of shining ideal um, that extended you know beyond the rhetoric into reality. Uh, so pointing to the the darker sides of stuff like the union war effort, I think is like, it, it's bracing uh, and it, it's challenging and it makes uh, people mad, I'm sure quite a lot, but it's also like really valuable to have that stuff just as like this alternative. Right. So I'm hoping to do a little bit of that with the, the Vietnam show that I'm doing. Uh, Cause with the topic I'm focusing on, like so many other things in the Vietnam literature, it's like, people are living in like different realities um, when it comes to interpreting the significance of like, you know, the facts most people can agree on for the most part, but when it comes time to interpret it and be like, what does this mean? It's like you can kind of pick the world that you want to live in. Um, so I think having as many different viewpoints and like having the, the bravery, I guess, for lack of a better word to, you know, sit yourself down and to really force yourself to listen to it and engage with it. That's super valuable. And that's one thing that I, I really like about your show and others as well. Well, thank you. And I'll, I'll basically say right back at you. Um, I'm a fan of, of your show for very similar reasons. And I'm very much looking forward to, to your upcoming series on 
aspects of the Vietnam War. I'll be very interested to hear your take on it. And it's been a, a really great time talking to you. It's been a great conversation. I'm, I'm sure my uh, audience is going to really appreciate it. So, Sam, I just want to say um, thanks for taking the time and thanks for coming on the Dangerous History Podcast. Yeah, thanks, CJ. Let's definitely do it again sometime. I'll have you on mine and we can uh, talk some history. Absolutely. Sounds good.